Chapter Eight of the Jesus of History by T. R. Glover. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight, The Choice of the Cross. By what they said, I perceived that he had been a great warrior, and had fought with and slain him that had the power of death, but not without a great danger to himself, which made me love him the more. Pilgrim's Progress, Part 1 The subject before us is one of the greatest difficulty. Why Jesus chose the cross has exercised the thought of the Christian world ever since he did so. He told his disciples beforehand of what lay before him, of what he was choosing, but it was long before they realised that he meant any such thing. The cross was, to them, a strange idea and for a long time they did not seriously face the matter. Once the cross was an accomplished fact, Christians could not, and did not wish to, avoid thinking out what had meant so much to their master. But it has mostly been with a sense of facing a mystery that in some measure eluded them, with a feeling that there is more beyond, something always to be attained hereafter. A very significant passage in St. Mark gives us a glimpse of a moment on Jesus's last journey to Jerusalem. It is a sentence which one could hardly imagine being included in the Gospel if it did not represent some actual memory, and a memory of significance. It runs something like this. And they were in the way, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was moving on before them. And they began to wonder, and as they followed they began to be afraid. He is moving to Jerusalem with a purpose. They do not understand it. He is wrapped in thought, and, as happens when a man's mind is working strongly, his pace quickens, and they find themselves at a distance behind him. And then something comes over them, a sense that there is something in the situation which they do not understand, a strangeness in the mind. They realise, in fact, that they are not as near Jesus as they had supposed, and as they follow, the wonder deepens into fear. Anyone who will really try to grapple with this problem of the cross will find very soon the same thing. The first thing that we need to learn, if our criticism of Jesus is to be sound, is that we are not at all so near him as we have imagined. He eludes us goes far out beyond what we grasp or conceive, and I think the education of the Christian man or woman begins anew when we realise how little we know about Jesus. The discovery of our ignorance is the beginning of our knowledge. Plato, long ago, said that wonder is the mother of philosophy, and he was right. John Donne, the English poet, went farther and said all divinity is love or wonder. When a man then begins to wonder about Jesus Christ in earnest, Jesus comes to be for him a new figure. Historical criticism has done this for us. It has brought us to such a point that the story of these earliest disciples repeats itself more closely in the experience of their followers of these days than in any century since the first. We begin, along with them, on the friendly, critical human plane, and with them we follow him into experiences and realisations that we never expected. 
it may be summed up in the familiar words of the English hymn. O happy band of pilgrims, if onward ye will tread, with Jesus as your fellow, to Jesus as your head. These men begin with him, more or less on a footing of equality, or at least the inequality is very lightly marked. Afterwards, it is emphasised, and they realise it with wonder and with fear, and at last with joy and gratitude. We may begin by trying steadily to bring our minds to some keener sense of what it was that he chose. To say, in the familiar words, that he chose the cross, may through the very familiarity of the language lead us away from what we have to discover. We have, as we agreed, to ask ourselves what was his experience. What, then, did his choice involve? It meant, of course, physical pain. There are natures to whom this is of little account, but the sensitive and sentient type, as we often observe, dreads pain. He, with open eyes, chose physical pain, heightened to torture, not escaping any of the suffering which anticipation gives. That physical horror of death, that instinctive fear of annihilation, which nature suggests of itself. He took the course of action that would most severely test his disciples. One at least revolted, and we have to ask what it meant to Jesus to live with Judas, to watch his face, to recognise his influence in the little group. Yes, and to try and win him again and to be repelled. He learnt by the things that he suffered that Judas would betray him, but the hour and place and method were not so evident. And when they were at last revealed, what did it mean to be kissed by Judas? Do we feel what he felt in the so-called trials? Or was he dull and numbed by the catastrophe? How did he bear the beating of triumphant hatred upon a forsaken spirit? How did the horrible cry, crucify him, crucify him, break on his ears, on his mind? When... The Lord turned and looked upon Peter. What did it mean? How did he know that Peter was there? And what led him to turn at that moment? Was there in the passion no element of uneasiness again about the eleven on whom he had concentrated his hopes and his influence? The eleven of whom it is recorded that they all forsook him and fled. No hint of dread that his work might indeed be undone? What pain must that have involved? What is the value of the agony in the garden, of the cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? When we have answered, each for himself, these questions, and others like them that will suggest themselves, answered them by the most earnest efforts of which our natures are capable, and remembered at the end how far our natures fall short of his, and told ourselves that our answers are insufficient, then let us recall once more that he chose all this. He chose the cross and all that it meant. Our next step should be to study anew his own references to what he intends by it, to what he expects to be its results and outcome. First of all, then, he clearly means that the kingdom of heaven is something different from anything that man has yet seen. The kingdom of heaven is, I understand, a Hebrew way of saying the kingdom of God, 
very much as men today speak of providence to avoid undue familiarity with the term God. So the Jews would say heaven. There were many who used the phrase in one or other form, but it is always bad criticism to give to the words of genius the value or the connotation they would have in the lips of ordinary people. To a great mind, words are charged with a fullness of meaning that little people do not reach. The attempt has been made to recapture more of his thoughts by learning the value given to some of the terms he uses as they appear in the literature of the day, and of course it has been helpful. But we have to remember always that the terms as used by him come with a new volume of significance derived from his whole personality. Everything turns on the connotation which he gives to the term God. That is central and pivotal. What this new kingdom of God is, or will be, he does not attempt fully to explain or analyse. In the parables, the treasure finder and the pearl merchant achieve a great enrichment of life. So much, they know at once. But what do they do with it? How do they look at it? What does it mean to them? He does not tell us. We only see that they are moving on a new plane, seeing life from a new angle, living in a fuller sense. What the new life means in its fullness, we know only when we gain the deeper knowledge of God. He suggests that this new knowledge comes to a man from God himself. Flesh and blood do not reveal it. Unto you it is given, he says on another occasion, to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And he adds that there are those who see and do not see. They are outside it. They have not the alphabet, we might say, that will open the book. He makes it clear at every point in the story of the kingdom of God that there is more beyond. And he means it. It is to be a new beginning, an initiation, leading on to what we shall see, but do not yet guess. Though he gives us hints. We shall not easily fathom the depth of his idea of the new life, but along with it we have to study the width and boldness of his purpose. This new life is not for a few, the elect in our careless phrase. He looks to a universal scope for what he is doing. It will reach far outside the bounds of Judaism. They shall come from the east and from the west, and from the north and the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, he says, my words shall not pass away. All time and all existence come under his survey and are included in his plan. The range is enormous. And this was a Galilean peasant. As we gradually realise what he has in mind, must we not feel that we have not grasped anything like the full grandeur of his thought? He makes it plain in the second place that it will be a matter for followers, for workers, for men who will watch and wait and dare, men with the same abandonment as himself. He calls for men to come after him, to come behind him. He emphasises that they must think out the terms on which he enlists them. He does not disguise the drawbacks of his service. He calls his followers and a very personal and individual call it is. He calls a man from the lakeshore, 
from the nets from the custom house. In the third place, he clearly announces an intention to achieve something in itself of import by his death. There are those who would have us believe that his mind was obsessed with the fixed idea of his own speedy return on the clouds, and that he hurried on to death to precipitate this and the new age it was to bring. References to such a coming are indeed found in the Gospels as we have them, but we are bound to ask whence they come, and to inquire how far they represent exactly what he said, and then, if he is correctly reported, to make sure that we know exactly what he means. Those who hold this view fail to relate to the texts they emphasise with others of a deeper significance, and they ignore the grandeur and penetration and depth of the man who they make out to be such a dreamer. He never suggests himself that his death is to force the hand of God. He himself is to be the doer and achiever of something. We have been apt to think of him as a great teacher, a teacher of charm and insight, or as the great example of idealism who saw life steadily and saw it whole. He lived, some hold, the rounded and well-poised life, the rhythmic life. No, that was Sophocles. He is greater. Here is one who penetrates far deeper into things. His treatment of the psychology of sin itself shows how much more than an example was needed. Here, as in all the other chapters, but here above all, we have to remember the clearness of his insight, his swiftness of penetration, his instinct for fact and reality. He means to do, to achieve, something. It is no martyr's death that he incurs. His death is a step to a purpose. I have a baptism to be baptised with, he says. The Son of Man, he said, is come to seek and save that which is lost. In discussing in the previous chapter what he meant by the term lost, our conclusion was that for Jesus, sin was far more awful, far more serious than we commonly realise. We saw also that so profound and true a psychology of sin must imply a view of redemption at least as profound, a promise of a force more than equal to the power of sin, that violence of habit of which St. Augustine speaks. If the Son of Man is to save the lost, and if the lost are in danger so real, it follows that he must think of a thoroughly effective salvation and that its achievement will be no light or easy task. To give one's life as a ransom for many, says a modern teacher, is of no avail if the ransom is insufficient. What then, and how much, does he mean by to save, and how does he propose to do it? When the soul of man or woman has gone wrong in any of the ways discussed by Jesus, in hardness or anger, in impurity, in the refusal to treat God and his facts seriously, when the consequences that Jesus recognised have followed, what can be done to bring that soul back into effective relation with the God whom it has discarded and abandoned? That is the problem Jesus had to face, and most of us have not thought enough about it. First of all, how far does Jesus understand salvation to take a man? The ancient creed of the church includes the article of belief in the forgiveness of sins. 
there are those who lightly assume that this means chiefly or solely the remission of punishment for evil acts this raises problems enough of itself the whole doctrine of karma vital to buddhism and hinduism is if i understand it aright a strong and clear warning to us that the remission of punishment is no easy matter not only eastern thinkers but western also insist that there is no avoidance of the consequences of action luther himself using a phrase half borrowed from a latin poet says that forgiveness is a knot worthy of god's aid nodus deo vindice dignus but in any case escape from the consequences of sin when once we look on sin with the eyes of jesus is of relatively small importance there are two aspects of the matter far more significant we have seen how jesus regards sin as at once the cause and consequence of a degeneration of the moral nature and as a repudiation of god two questions arise is it possible to recover lost moral quality and faculty is it possible for those incapacitated by sin to regain or to enjoy relation with god when we think with jesus of sin first and foremost in connection with god and take the trouble to try and give his meaning to his words forgiveness takes on a new meaning we have to think like god he says and perhaps god is in his thoughts neither so legal nor so biological as we are perhaps he does not think first of edicts or of biological and psychological laws god according to jesus thinks first of his child though of course not oblivious of his own commands and laws forgiveness jesus teaches or suggests is primarily a question between father and son and he tries to lead us to believe how ready the father is to settle that question once it is settled we find in fact father and son setting to work to mend the past the evil seed has been sown and the sad crop must be reaped the man who sowed it has to reap it that much we see but jesus hints to us that god himself loves to come in and help his reconciled son with the reaping many hands make light work especially when they are such hands and even when the crop is evil in the lives of others the most horrible outcome of sin god is still in the field the prodigal when he returns is met with a welcome and is gradually put in possession of what he has lost the robe the shoes the ring and it all comes from his being at one with his father again the son of man historically has again and again found the lost the lost gifts the lost faculties the lost charms and graces and given them back to the man whom he had also found and brought home to god let us try once more to get our thoughts theocentric as jesus's are and our problems become simpler or at least fewer god's generosity and forgiveness god's love he emphasizes again and again will a man take jesus at his word and commit himself to god that is the question once he will venture on this step what pictures jesus draws us of what happens the sun is home again 
the bankruptcy, the hideous solitude, the life among animals, bestial, dirty and empty, and haunted with memories, all these things are past when once the father's arms are round his neck and his kiss on his cheek. He is no more alienated from the life of God, without God and the world, an enemy of God. He was lost and is found, and the father himself, Jesus says, cries, let us be merry. If we hesitate about it, Jesus calls us once more to think like God and tells us other stories with incredible joy in them, joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. We must go back to his central conception of God if we are to realise what he means by salvation. St. Augustine brings out the value of these parables by reminding us how much more we care for a thing that has been ours when we have lost it and found it again. The shepherd has a new link with his sheep lost and found again, a new story of it, a shared experience. It is more his than ever, and Jesus implies that when a man is saved, he is God's again, and more God's own than ever before, and God is glad at heart. As for the man, a new power comes into his heart, and a new joy, and with God's help, in a new spirit of sunshine, he sets about mending the past in a new spirit and with a new motive. For love's sake, now, if the fruit of the past is to be seen, as it constantly is, in the lives of others, he throws himself with the more energy into God's work, and when the good shepherd goes seeking the lost, he goes with him. Christian history bears witness in every year of it to what salvation means in Jesus' sense. Punishment, consequences, crippled resources. No, he does not ask to escape them now, all as God pleases. These are not the things that matter. Life is all to be boundless love and gratitude and trust, and by and by the new man wakes up to find sin taken away, its consequences undone, the lost faculties restored, and life a fuller and richer thing than ever it was before. Somehow so, if we read the Gospels aright, does Jesus conceive of salvation. To achieve this for men is his purpose, and in order to do it, as we have said before, his first step is to induce men to rethink God. Something must be done to touch the heart and move the will of men effectively, and he must do it. With this purpose in mind, let us weigh our words here and reflect again upon the clearness of his insight into life and character, into moral laws, the laws of human thought and feeling, upon his profound intelligence and grasp of what moves and is real, his knowledge, a strong word to use but we may use it, of God. With this purpose in mind, thought out and understood, he deliberately and quietly goes to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. I must walk, he said, today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. To Jerusalem he goes. We may admit that with his view of the psychology of sin, he must have a serious view of redemption, but why should that involve the cross? That is our problem. 
but while we try to solve it we must also remember that behind a great choice there are always more reasons than we can analyse a man makes one of the great choices in life what has influenced him ten to one if you ask him he does not know nothing else he will say seemed feasible the thing was borne in on me it came to me reasons he cannot tabulate reasons the thing he says was so clear that i was a long way past reasons and yet he was right he had reasons enough what parent ever analyzed reasons for loving his children or would tabulate them for you jesus does not explain his reasons we find i think that we are apt to have far more reasons for doing what we know is wrong than we have for doing what we know is right we do not want reasons for doing what is right we know it is right and there is an end of it once again jesus with his clear eye for the real sees what he must do the salvation of the lost means the cross for himself but why we ask again we must look a little closer if we are to understand him we shall not easily understand him in all his thoughts but part of our education comes from the endeavour to follow him here to be with him in the phrase with which we began first of all we may put his love of men he never lost the individual in the mass never lost sight of the human being who needed god the teacher who put the law of kindness in the great phrase go with him twain was not likely to limit himself in meeting men's needs he was bound to do more than we should expect when he saw people whom he could help and it is that spirit of abounding generosity that shows a man what to do everywhere every day he met the call that quickened thought and shaped purpose he walked down a street and the scene of misery or of sin came upon him with pressure he could not pass by as we do and fail to note what we do not wish to think of he knows a pressure upon his spirit for the man the child the woman for the one who sins the one who suffers the other who dies they must be got in touch with god he sits with his disciples at a meal the men whom he loved he watches them he listens to them peter james john one after the other becomes a call to him they need redemption they need far more than they dream they need god that pressure is there night and day it becomes intercession and that grows into inspiration our prayers suffer someone has said for our want of our identification with the world's sin and misery he was identified with the world's sin and misery and they followed him into his prayer it becomes with him an imperative necessity to effect man's reconciliation with god all his experience of man his love of man call him that way the second great momentum comes from the love of god and his faith in god here again we must emphasize for ourselves his criticism of peter you think like a man and not like god we do not see god as jesus did he must make plain to men as it was never made plain before the love of god he must secure that it is for every man 
the greatest reality in the world, the one great flaming fact that burns itself living into every man's consciousness. He sees that for this God calls him to the cross, so much so that when he prays in the garden that the cup may pass, his thoughts range back to thy will. It is God's will. Even if he does not himself see all involved, still God knows the reason. God will manage. God wishes it. Have faith in God, he used to say. This faith which he has in God is one of the things that take him to the cross. In the third place, we must not forget his sense of his own peculiar relation to God. If it is safe to rely on St. Mark's chronological date here, he does not speak of this until Peter has called him the Messiah. He accepts the title. He also uses the description, Son of Man, with its suggestions from the past. He forgives sins. He speaks throughout the Gospels as one apart, as one distinct from us, closely as he is identified with us. And all this from a son of fact, who is not insane, who is not a quack, whose eyes are wide open for the real, whose instinct for the ultimate truth is so keen, who lives face to face with God. What does it mean? This for one thing, that most of us have not given attention enough to this matter. I have confined myself in these chapters to the Synoptic Gospels, with only two or three references to the Fourth Gospel, and on the evidence of the Synoptic Gospels, taken by themselves, it is clear that he means a great deal more than we have cared to examine. He is the great interpreter of God, and it is borne in upon him that only by the cross can he interpret God, make God real to us, and bring us to the very heart of God. That is his purpose. The cross is the outcome of his deepest mind, of his prayer life. It is more like him than anything else he ever did. It has in it more of him. Whoever he was, whoever he is, whatever our Christology, one fact stands out. It was his love of men and women and his faith in God that took him there. Was he justified? Was he right? Or was it a delusion? First of all, let us go back to a historic event. The resurrection is, to a historian, not very clear in its details. But is it the detail or the central fact that matters? Take away the resurrection, however it happened, whatever it was, and the history of the church is unintelligible. We live in a rational world, a world, that is, where, however much remains as yet unexplained, everything has a promise of being lucid, everything has reason in it. Great results have great causes. We have to find, somewhere or other, between the crucifixion and the first preaching of the disciples in Jerusalem, something that entirely changed the character of that group of men. Something happened, so tremendous and so vital, that it changed not only the character of the movement in the men, but with them the whole history of the world. The evidence for the resurrection is not so much what we read in the Gospels as what we find in the rest of the New Testament. 
the new life of the disciples. They are a new group. When it came to the cross, his cross, they ran away. A few weeks later we find them rejoicing to be beaten, imprisoned, and put to death. What has happened? What we have to explain is a new life. A new life of prayer and joy and power. A new indifference to physical death. In a new relation to God. That is one outcome of the cross and of what followed, and as historians we have to explain it. We have also to explain how the disciples came to conceive of another Galilean, a carpenter whom they might have seen sawing and sweating in his shop, with whom they tramped the road of Palestine, whom they saw done to death in ignominy and derision, sitting at the right hand of God. Taken by itself, we might call such a belief mere folly, but too much goes with it for so easy an explanation. The cross was not the end. As Mr. Neville Talbot has recently pointed out in his book, The Mind of the Disciples, if the story stopped with the cross, God remains unexplained, and the story ends in unrelieved tragedy. But it does not end in tragedy. It ends, if we can use the word as yet, in joy and faith and victory. And these, how should we have seen them but for the cross? They are bound up with his choice of the cross and his triumph over it all. Death is not what it was, the last line of all, as Horace says. Life and immortality have been brought to light. The Lamb of God taketh away the sin of the world. So we read at the beginning of the fourth gospel, and the historical critic may tell us that he does not think that John the Baptist said it. Nonetheless, it is a wonderful summary of what Jesus has done, especially wonderful if we think of it being written fifty or sixty years after the crucifixion. For, as we survey the centuries, we find that the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world, to a degree that no one can imagine who has not studied the ancient world. Those who know the heathen world intimately will know best the difference that he has made. All this new life, this new joy, this new victory over death and sin is attached to the living and victorious Son of God. The task of Paul and the others is, as Dr. Cairns says, rethinking everything in the terms of the resurrection. It is the new factor in the problem of God, so to speak. The new factor which alters everything that relates to God. That is saying a great deal. But when we look at Christian history, is it saying too much? But still our first question is unanswered. Why should it have been the cross? One thinker of our day has suggested that, after all, suffering is a language intelligible to the very simplest, while its meaning is not exhausted by the deepest. The problem of pain is always with us, and he chose pain. He never said that pain is a good thing. He cured it. But he chose it. The ancient world stumbled on that very thing. God and a godlike man, their philosophers said, are not susceptible to pain, to suffering. That was an axiom, very little challenged that if Jesus suffered, he was not God. If he was God, he did not suffer. 
the church denied that just as the church today rejects another hasty antithesis about pain that comes from new england he chose pain and he knew what he was choosing then let us be in no hurry about refusing it but let us look into it he chose it that is the greatest fact known to us about pain again the death of christ reveals sin in its real significance in its true perspective outside the realm of accident and among the deepest things of god men count themselves very decent people so thought the priests and the pharisees and they were there is nothing about them that one cannot find in most religious communities and in all governing classes the sense of the value of themselves their preoccupations and their judgments a strong feeling of the importance of the work they have to do along with a certain reluctance to face strange facts and some indifference as to what happens to other people if the accepted theory of the cause of the state require them to suffer there is nothing about pilate and herod and the pharisees and the priests that is very different from ourselves but how it looks in front of the cross we begin to see how it looks in the sight of god and that alters everything it upsets all our standards and teaches us a new self-criticism you think like man and not like god said jesus the cross reveals god most sympathetically we see god in the light of the fullest and profoundest and tenderest revelation that the world has had my god my god why hast thou forsaken me that is the cry of jesus on the cross i have sometimes thought there was never an utterance that reveals more amazingly the difference between feeling and fact that was how he felt worn out betrayed spat upon rejected we feel that god was more there than ever as has been said if it is not god it is nothing god says paul was in christ reconciling the world unto himself he chose the cross and in choosing it christians have always felt he revealed god and that is the centre of the great act of redemption but there is a condition antecedent to understanding the cross we have as we agreed to ask ourselves what is the experience which led him to think as he did in the simpler language of the gospels quite plain and easy to understand the call to follow comes first the call to deeper association with jesus christ in his love for man do not our consciences tell us that if we really loved people as jesus does if we understood them as sympathetically and cared as much for them the cross would be far more intelligible to us but if in plain fact we do not see why we should bear the cross for others why we should deny and obliterate self on this scale for the salvation of men how i ask to people of such a mind should jesus be intelligible it is not to be expected in no other sphere would one dream of it when a man avows that he does not care for art or poetry who would wish to show him poem or picture how should a person who does not care for men understand the cross 
deeper association then with jesus in his love for men in his agony in his trust in god that is the key to all as we agreed at the very beginning we have to know him before we can understand him it all depends in the long run on one thing and that we find in the verse with which we started and as they followed they began to be afraid but they followed we can understand their fear it comes to a man this way if jesus crucified means anything like what the church has said and has believed if god is in that man of nazareth reconciling the world to himself if there is real meaning in the incarnation at all if this language represents fact then he may say i am wholly at a loss about everything else a man builds up a world of thought for himself we all do a scheme of things and to a man with a thought-out view of the world it may come with an enormous shock to realize this incredible idea this incredible truth of god in christ those who have dwelt most on it and value it most may be most apt to understand what i mean by calling it incredible think of it it takes your breath away if that is true does not the whole plan of my life fall to pieces my whole scheme of things for the world my whole body of intellectual conceptions and the man to whom this happens may well say he is afraid he is afraid because it is so strange because when you realize it it takes you into a new world you cannot grasp it a man whose instinct is for truth may hesitate will hesitate about a conception like this is it possible he will ask himself that i am deluded and another thought rises up again and again where will it take me we can understand a man being afraid in that way i do not think we have much right not to be afraid if it is the incarnation of god what right do we have not to be afraid then of course a man will say that to follow christ involves too much in the way of sacrifice he is afraid on lower grounds afraid of his family afraid for his career he hesitates to that man the thing will be unintelligible the experience of saint augustine revealed in his confessions is illuminative here he had intellectual difficulties in his approach to the christian position but the rate of progress became materially quicker when he realized that the moral difficulties came first that a practical step had to be taken so with us to decide the issue how far are we prepared to go with jesus have we realized the experience behind his thought the rule which we laid down at the beginning holds how far are we prepared to go in sharing that experience that will measure our right to understand him once again in the plainest language are we prepared to follow as the disciples followed afraid as they were where is he going where is he taking them they wonder they do not know they are uneasy but when all is said the figure on the road ahead of them waiting for them now and looking around is the jesus who loves them and whom they love 
and one can imagine the feeling rising in the mind of one and another of them. I don't know where he is going, or where he is taking us, but I must be with him. There we reach again what the whole story began with. He chose twelve, that they might be with him. To understand him, we, too, must be with him. What takes men there? After all, it is, in the familiar phrase, the love of Jesus. If one loves the leader, it is easier to follow him. But whether you understand him, or whether you don't, if you love him, you are glad that he chose the cross, and you are glad that you are one of his people. End of chapter 8